DJ and PK, it's 97.5. At 1280 The Zone. All right, PK was just watching What If on uh, NBA Network. So, what if Robert Ory doesn't hit that buzzer-baiting three? And so then they draw this whole thing where the Sacramento Kings uh, are back-to-back NBA champions. I don't like it. I'll give you the first one. I think the first one's a great what if. The first title, yes, but not the second one. And then the Spurs, if they don't have that, uh, that meeting and turn things around... Then Popovich gets fired, the dynasty doesn't take off, the coaching tree doesn't happen, and the Spurs end up moving. Man, that's sad. The Spurs, the five-time champs. That's a great marriage between a club and a city. And, you know, San Antonio doesn't have what Houston and Dallas have, where Dallas has everything and Houston has everything except hockey. You know, and San Antonio has the Spurs. They don't have Major League Baseball. They don't have the NFL. Nor will they ever get the NFL because Jerry Jones is not allowing that. Not happening. So, a what if for the Jazz? You brought that up before the, the break, and David Locke brought this up, and I think there's a lot to it. The Jazz in 92 play the Clippers in the first round. And it's the series that's remembered because the riots delayed the games in L.A. and they moved them down to Anaheim. And it was when they played best of five in the first round and the Jazz won two in Utah. They lost the two in Anaheim. They came back and won game five at home. But if they lose game five at home, then Jerry Sloan's coaching record looks really different, PK. The Jazz, uh, the series we always talk about in 88 when the Lakers are the champs and the Jazz, now it was, it was quote-unquote only the second round, but the Lakers were in the process of going back-to-back. And the Jazz led that series two games to one and forced a game seven, and the Lakers won. And that fifth game when it was 2-2 was really tight. Michael Cooper, I think, hit a late shot. And that was a great series. The Jazz were very close to the world champs. But Frank Layden stepped down early next year, and in 89, the Jazz got swept in the first round by the Warriors. And in 90... They got beat by the Suns in five, and I think I think Kevin Johnson hit like a 15-footer at the free throw line and right at the end of game five to win it. And in 90, the Jazz won, did win a first-round series. They beat the Suns, and that was the first playoff series Jerry won. But they got smoked by the Blazers in the second round. If they had lost to the Clippers in the first round, the Clippers, who had been terrible, hadn't been in the playoffs in like 15 years at that point, Jerry gets fired. Carl and or John get traded. This group just can't do it. They've only won two playoff series in five years. Jerry's only won one in the four years he's the head coach. And if they hadn't let him go then, the next year they went out in the first round to the Supersonics in the first round. They, they, for their credibility, for, for Jerry and for John and for Carl, they really needed that run to the Western Conference Finals in 92. If they goof up Game 5 at home against the Clippers... I think the 90s look a lot different in the NBA in Utah. I think that's a big old what if, and I don't think that's a stretch at all. That's the equivalent of the Kings winning one championship. I can totally buy that. If Ori doesn't hit that shot and the Kings go up 3-1, to say they win the championship, totally realistic. And I I buy this too. Uh, If they'd lost in the first round, Jerry could have gone out in the first round four times in five years. Coaching change, move the pillars of the franchise. They already moved. Scott Layden was the GM, and he changed the rest of the franchise. He flipped everything except Stockton Malone and David Benoit. All the other players 
uh, who are on that 92 Western Conference final team were gone by training camp of the uh, 93-94 season. Uh, I disagreed with Locke then. I disagree with you now. How many coaches <laughs> did Larry Miller fire? Well, he didn't. He didn't fire coaches. That's my whole point. Yeah. So now you're assuming he's going to fire his sole brother? Well, I don't oh. know that he and Jerry were at that point. I don't. I mean, they oh, got no. tight later on. But come on, Larry Miller knew what was up. He always knows what was up, man. He's like freaking Santa Claus <laughs> in the movie Christmas Story. He knows. He always <laughs> knows. <laughs> come on, the guy had it. His instincts and all that stuff—they're off the charts. No. I don't see that. He he, he, may not, he developed a relationship. Obviously, if you know somebody two years versus ten, you're probably going to be tighter with them over ten years versus two just because over the course of time it's going to give you more experiences. Not necessarily, but, you know, just probably. But I think that Larry Miller in his gut knew what Jerry Sloan was about. No, I see. I, I and I don't think I don't think that's the premise of the whole thing. You, the, the premise is the whole thing is suppose we would have got Ron, Ronnie Ronnie Cycli and he would have come in and he wouldn't have been stupid and didn't want that trade. Then we would have won. We would have beat the Sonics and uh, whomever that was in the way at the time. I forget which year it was that they were going. Did they go to the finals that year? Or yeah, that was that was uh, that was. Uh, I don't know if it was for '97 or for '98, but that deal was for one of those teams it wasn't it wasn't 96 when they lost to the sonics it was 97 or 98 when they lost to the bulls okay so i think that's the premise of it rather than well then okay lost that game if you won if the pacers win game seven of the 98 eastern finals in chicago and beat jordan and the bulls then the jazz beat the pacers and win the title pacers would have been all wide-eyed they would have been in the finals for the first time the jazz would have experience yak just bit his lip and bobbed his head yak is on board i'm I'm on on board board with that that too but you're asking the impossible MJ to lose. lose a game seven at home, right? <laughs> yes. yes, exactly. Because I remember watching that series as it was playing out, realized it was going seven. I'm like, why don't the Bulls just win this thing in six? The Jazz are going to be off 10 days. That can't be good. Nobody wants 10 days off. And you know Jordan's going to win game seven at home. The Pacers aren't winning this thing. I'm with you. That's what I thought at the time. But Yes. Uh, how about this? If the Bulls win it in six then I don't get one of the greatest stories that I think I've ever done. I didn't receive any awards for it. That's why these awards are such crap, because they don't know what you went through to get the story. But because of that 10-day layoff that you speak of, that's when they called me in the office, hey, you're from Los Angeles, go down to L.A. and do a piece on Brian Russell. What? (laughs) (laughs) You're from L.A. That is awesome. He we will pay you to away. go to Los Angeles. Do yeah. it. It's, well, what do you want? I don't know. Figure it out, son. <laughs> that was that. Was, and actually, I should have been complimented that they trusted me to just go do a page one, not page one sports, page one, A one. They call it in the business. It's an A one story. Go down there, figure it out. Make your plane reservations. Figure out what you're gonna do. And come back and give us an A one story. Oh, okay. I'm not. I don't even really cover the jazz, so it's like I had zero relationship with Brian Russell. And the, the short story is, I ended up with a phenomenal story to the point where I was in his house. And it turns out um, he only lived about a mile away. 
what, what was the name of the woman who took him in when, I mean, really everything could have gone south for I him. I forget her name. And I she know. was a, just a big time stabilizing force in his life. He had a ton of respect for her, and he didn't think anybody in Utah who knew who she was. And you asked for something, and he was going to blow you off, and you said, hey, so-and-so, and then, man, his eyes just spun around in his head like, how do you know yep, about her? I who spent, have you been talking to? I know. I spent a couple of days down in, in San Bernardino, of all places. Thank you, Gordon. Of, <laughs> of uh, where he grew up, which was two hours from me. <laughs> hey, you're from Utah. I lived in Provo. Go find somebody in Logan. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't right. know Logan. Right. Yeah. And I, I literally landed on the ground thinking, what the heck am I going to do? I flew into Ontario because at least I knew that was closer than LAX to San Bernardino. So I had that. I had that, that, that local knowledge. Around. Was that yeah. the end of your local knowledge? <laughs> Don't fly into LAX. I just get parked on the 10 for an hour. Yeah. I mean, I knew how to get to San Bernardino. I've been <laughs> through it. I knew how to get to San Bernardino. In the land of I a, can get there. In the land of a thousand freeways. Right. Right, but you didn't have GPS or your phone or any of that right. stuff then. So Finding a I, specific school would be a little trickier, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Now you can just punch it in your phone. It'll take you right to the doorstep. But, no, at least I, I knew where the area was. So I had a leg up on any of my colleagues at the, at the watchdog. And so, yeah, I, I show up. Last day of the school's already out. There, it's the last day for teachers. I show up. If I would have showed up the next day, you I wouldn't have story. been able to yeah. do it because they would have been gone. I show. I literally show up cold, walk in, and say what I'm doing. Uh, Brian Russell played here. I'm, I'm, they want me to do a profile from him for about him. She looks at me and she says, "The secretary says, come with me." Takes me back to a teacher that had housed Brian Russell. Brian Russell came home from Long Beach. And where his apartment was, where his family was, they weren't there. Mother wasn't there. Moved, didn't know about it. And this was after he was out. Well, this is when he was in the 10th grade. He had uh, issues, obviously. This lady took him in. This white lady took him in and raised him in high school. And then she has cancer, and he pays for it, and she almost dies. In an hours of time of sitting in her classroom, she's crying. She's sobbing, recalling the story. I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I get the lottery here. <laughs> you know, the funny part of this story, though, is you saying, you know, I really should have been complimented that the Trib had confidence in me. That's not how you're wired. I know. I, you, know. I just you, thought of it right now. You blow that part of the story <laughs> off and go straight to, I wrote a good headline once, and Michael C. Lewis got credit for it. More than once. But yeah. <laughs> more, more than once. See, that's you. <laughs> I know. Now that I think about it, in 22 years of uh, retrospect, I should have been confident. But I wasn't. I never. I no. I always took somebody was sliding me. That's how I got up out of bed every day. And uh, so yeah. So I ended up with this phenomenal story. I come back and actually what the uh, the ten day layoff too. Well, they had me stay down there, and I went to. Um, uh, I did some stuff, some other stuff that was down there relative to basketball. So anyway, I come back and I go to uh, a practice, and Russell comes out of the locker. And I said, hey, I need to see you. I need to meet with you tomorrow. Now, we're off, man. Tomorrow's a day off. No, no media interviews. And I said, well, I spoke to, I don't know what her name was. I forget. Kim Jones. I just spent a couple of days down there. He looks at me. He stops in his tracks. He said, Jazz PR will call you uh, a little bit and come over to my house today. <laughs> and, and so I end up in his uh, living room. 
with his wife who knew the lady because the la- the woman, the former teacher, had come up and si- and si- to that day was spending time with her up here. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. Brian Howell, Colorado Buffalo's beat writer for Buff Zone and the Boulder Daily Camera, joins us next. Our spring football tur- tour turnover in Boulder. Coach is one and done. They had to get a new coach. He's an ex-Pac-12 coach. How's it playing in Boulder? We'll get to that next. Now let's get this party started. This is Hans Olsen and Scotty G on the Zone Sports Network. I am so sick and tired of seeing social media make this run that Aaron Rodgers isn't going to handle this like a professional and he's going to mistreat Jordan Love and this is a mess that they've caused and this is a wasted pick. No, no, no. They felt like Jordan Love was the quarterback of the future. They felt like it was worth the first round gamble and I agree with them and I think it's going to be handled well. Everybody wants to think a locker room is all warm and fuzzy but it's not for him to go out there and say how Okay, let's get you up to speed and let's do this and this and this. And so are you going to go out of your way to help develop this guy to take your job? Probably not. I wouldn't. It's up to Jordan Love to get himself ready to play. It's up to the coaches to develop Jordan Love. It's not Aaron Rodgers' job. Hanson Scotting. Weekdays from 10 to 2 on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. We're joined now by Brian Howell, Colorado Buffalo's beat writer for Buff Zone and the Boulder Daily Camera. Brian joins us on the Sprint special guest line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. Please visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. Brian, good morning. Good morning. How are you guys? We're doing well, and I'm curious if Buff fans are doing well or if they're still stung by Mel Tucker bolting after a year and they're upset that Carl Durrell is in. Or, given all the events in the world and the coronavirus, it just seems weird to complain about college football coaches. And so, really, the whole thing's just kind of uh, quieted down. Yeah, I don't don't think anybody's really upset about uh, Durrell being the coach. I think they're going to be stung by Cal Tucker for a long time. I mean, that was, that kind of came out of nowhere and, um, you know, Buff fans were blindsided by that and uh, there's no love lost, uh, you know, between Tucker at this point, but I think Terrell, I mean, he's a guy that has a lot of roots at CU and uh, they're ready to get behind him. Yeah, Terrell's a likable guy, that's for sure. Got to know him a little bit when he was down there with uh, the Bruins, and now it's the second time around here, and it's a big gap in between. Um, He has a a difficult job to an extent. You look at the quarterback, and it seems like Montez was a starter there for about eight years. (laughs) I know that's possible, but it just seems like he was there for a long, pretty good quarterback, and obviously got a free agent look here in the NFL. Quarterback situation, I listened to Durrell's, he did a teleconference call, I think, last month, and he was talking about the two quarterbacks on campus, you know, one's a freshman and one was a backup, Uh, but now they don't have an opportunity to have that spring ball. How do you think that competition is going to play out? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, You know, not having that spring ball for them uh, was is big because uh, you know they had the freshman that enrolled early, Brendan Lewis, that they really like. He's a dual threat from Texas, and um, you know there wasn't a, that chance to go through a spring ball. And then uh, you've got a couple of veterans, Tyler Lytle as uh, a junior, that uh, I think is probably the front runner at this point, especially with no spring ball. Uh, he'd probably be the front runner. He was Montez's backup uh, each of the last three years, and then uh, you know Sam Neuer is a kid that uh, was a backup that. 
Tucker convinced to move to safety last year. And at the end of the season, he goes into the transfer portal, and then they convince him to come back because they need a quarterback depth. So the three guys there, the program, you know, there's not a lot of experience. And, uh, you know, Neuer, the one that I think missed them. And so I think it's it's interesting to see how that competition is going to play out because they don't have that extra uh, spring and summer to evaluate these guys. So we all watched the NFL draft because there was nothing else on. And LaVisca Chenault, obviously, uh, you know, they got to him and there's a ton of hype. And we all remember him and all the big plays he made. And they rolled a bunch of them out there because we show the, you know, the, the video and the best players, uh, the, the best plays by the best players. So obviously he made a lot of big plays. Who can make big plays? Who's a game changer for him now that he's gone? I think they have several. I mean, they've really stockpiled the wide receiver uh, position over the last few years. And Katie Nixon is one that uh, we've seen over the last couple of years that didn't have a great year last year. And uh, I don't think he uh, really adjusted well to the offense they ran last year. But, you know, Darren Chivarini is the offensive coordinator and his position coach. And he's running things now. And so I think he's going to be a, a big part of the offense. He's a guy like LaVisca, not the same size, but. He's got that versatility where he can run the ball and also catch the ball. I think he's a game-breaker. And then I think Daniel Arias is one that uh, he's only made a couple catches in his first two years, but uh, that's a potential all-conference type receiver, big kid that you know has just kind of slowly come along in the last couple of years. But he's one that, uh, you know, Shiverini believes could be a first-round draft pick by the time he's done. Looks like I can – possibly pencil in Fontenot for a thousand yards as a thousand yard rusher for the Buffs? Uh, possibly, but they've got competition there as well. I mean, Jared Mangum was a freshman last year that uh, played really well, and then they've got a, a four-star recruit coming in from Louisiana that they really like as well. So I think it could be sort of a three-man uh, rotation there, And but I think Fontenot you know, certainly came close to that thousand yard mark last year and, and could go for it, but I think that it could be more of a by committee, three-man type rotation. Given all the free time all of us have, uh, I've had time to go through some recruiting stuff. And I looked at, uh, and and it's not a perfect list probably, but we'll just use it for purposes here. Um, 24-7 Sports lists all the top in-state athletes. Uh, and, and Colorado doesn't have a lot of four-star kids. I think there was one in the 2019 class. There's two in the 2020 class. Now that the 2019 class is done, you go back and you look, and only two of the top 10 in-state kids went to Colorado. And of the top 16 kids, 12 went to Pac-12 schools, but only five went to Colorado. How is this new staff constructed as far as recruiting? How much talent do they think they can get out of Colorado? Can they get back to Texas, which they recruited really well when they were in the Big 12 and they had really good teams in the Big 12. Have they shifted to Colorado because Carl Durrell obviously grew up in San Diego, played at UCLA, coached at UCLA. Is it going to be more of an emphasis on Colorado? How's Colorado going to recruit going forward? Yeah, I think they're still going to stay in California and Texas as much as possible. I mean, those have been the keys to their success in the past. And, you know, this is a state that's got some talent. But, you know, as as you mentioned there, there's not a lot of four-stars. There's not a lot of great talent in this state. And, you know, and so I think there's a lot of times that the coaches say, well, we'd rather take a third-tier receiver in Texas 
than the top tier receiver in Colorado. Uh, you know, Lavisca Chenault was kind of a third tier receiver out of Texas coming out of high school, and he was better than anything that was here in Colorado. So um, I think it's tough to recruit this state because it's a transient state, and there's a lot of kids that that really want to uh, go out of state, and they don't want to come to CU. And I think uh, the the best way for CU to recruit in-state is to start winning football games because they're not real attractive to the in-state recruits right now. And they're going to do their best to try to get these guys, but I think it's really tough to get them right now. A stud linebacker, I think, went in the third round. Taylor, who's going to be able to step up defensively? He lost, uh, you know, really <laughs> kind of a raw player that I uh, was developing, and they're going to miss him. But uh, Nate Lamon, uh, the inside linebacker, is, I think, one of the top couple of linebackers in the Pac-12. I think he's going to be uh, big for them. But they've got to replace Taylor on the outside. They've got a few guys that are raw, uh, got some potential uh, that, w- that we'll see. You know, It's kind of like quarterback where we haven't seen a whole lot of these guys in the field, so uh, it's hard to know who's going to step up at this point. But Carson Wells is one that is a junior that uh, you know, has been around the last couple of years. He's played well, and he's one that they're going to need to step up. So with the transition with the coach and the transition of quarterback and a transition with a big-time playmaker, how much hope is there in the short run? Because I think most of the preseason stuff, Colorado and Arizona are constantly at the bottom of the Pac-12 South. Does anyone expect a quick turnaround? Uh, or is it the notion that, yeah, they're going to be near the bottom of the Pac-12 South and it's going to take a while to, to grow their way into a better spot in the division? Yeah, in my opinion, I, I think it's unrealistic to expect them to be real good this year. I mean, especially the fact they have no spring ball and no summer. You know, Darrell came in late is, and I mean, he barely got his staff hired right So uh, these coaches hadn't even really had a chance to get to know the players and, uh, and certainly have never been on the field with them. So um, I think it's unrealistic uh, to, to expect them to do much this year. I mean, I could see a three- or four-win season uh, this year, and, and that's tough for them. Uh, like I said, going back to recruiting, that's going to be tough for them uh, for a little while. Uh, this might be something that kind of stunts their growth for a couple years. Do you think they need to tone down the schedule? I mean, they're opening up with Colorado State, Fresno, and Texas A&M. Uh, you don't never know uh, from year to year, but uh, that, that looks like it's a little beefy. It is a little beefy, and it's a lot beefy. <laughs> you know, I, I did something on the schedule a year or so ago, and uh, there are not many examples around the country you can find that, of schools like CU that have scheduled so many other Power Fives over the next decade. And, uh, I mean, they've, they've bitten off a lot, and I think a lot of it is, you know, financial. They want to get uh, attractive games for their fans, but... I mean, you look at that schedule, and there's a lot of seasons coming up to where they've got two Power Fives as their three non-conference games. So, you know, and they've dropped a lot of the FCS games. So you're looking at at seasons where they're playing like uh, TCU and Nebraska, you know, something like that. And that's tough. And I think that's a lot uh, to bite off right now for a program that's really struggled. And, um, you know, I'm curious to see how that plays out for them. I mean, this year, is, you know, with only one Power 5, that's sort of a soft schedule for them if you look at the next decade. So this year's not too bad. Is the CSU rivalry solid? Are they going to keep playing that on a neutral field? Is it going to revert to home and home? What? How is that going to play out? Uh, this is the last year of it, actually. They're going to play. Uh, last year was their last year in Denver. 
this year they're playing up in Fort Collins, and then they take a break for a couple of years, and then they're going to return to on-campus sites, and it won't be every year, but they'll play kind of two years on, two years off. That's the, kind of their plan for the, for the future going forward. So what I'm getting from you, correct me if I'm wrong, is you believe Tucker's departure is going to set the program back a couple years, or do you think the program was going to take a dip even with Tucker? Well, I think the combination of the Tucker departure, but then also uh, this pandemic and, and not having this offseason with the new coach, I think those two things combined are really going to set this program back. And um, not so much the – I think it's more so maybe the pandemic than the coaching change. Okay. But uh, certainly the late departure of Tucker and you know Darrell being hired so late in the process combined with this, I think it's going to set them back at least this year, and uh, you know we'll see going forward. But I think that this year is going to be real tough for them. So obviously they've been rebuilding a lot of facilities there. There's a pandemic impact, the timeline of all of that, because a lot of the recruiting issues could be traced back to the fact that they were kind of behind in the facilities race. Yeah, not really at the time because their football facilities have been built for a couple of years. It's done. more. Yeah. They've got some long-term plans uh, for other upgrades that they haven't even started yet. So um, I don't think the pandemic affects that yet. Um, I think if there's no football and they and there's a loss of income there, that certainly could change things. But I think right now it doesn't affect really what they want to do uh, facilities-wise. Well, Brian, we appreciate a little bit of time. Thanks for joining us, and we will uh, we'll follow the buffs down the road. Thanks for coming on the air with us. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Brian Howe covers the Colorado Buffaloes for the Buff Zone and the Boulder Daily Camera. You know, PK, we always talk about the best jobs in the conference and the fact that, you know, Oregon's got a lot of money. USC's got a ton of tradition. They're sitting in a great recruiting hotbed there, and they got an awesome brand. And then the Utes have a benefit built in because they have such a passionate fan base and don't have to compete with the NFL. So those are the best jobs. And there's probably some jobs that are kind of middle of the road that have some pluses and minuses. But the most difficult jobs, Colorado, Arizona, Oregon State, and Wazoo. I mean, if you had to look at the bottom third of the league, big picture, no coaches in place, and just say, you know, how are they built? Man, being right in the shadow of the Broncos and not in the metropolitan area, it seems like a tough combo there in Colorado. Uh, I can buy that. I do think that all of the jobs are tough, though. I don't think any of the jobs are easy. I think they're all difficult, and they all have their reasons. I mean, you can point to SC being what it is. Well, that creates the expectation. Expectations are Uh, too high? Well, sometimes, yeah. A a year after Clay Helton takes him to the Rose Bowl, he's a bum, and he's got to go. And even if he went to the Rose Bowl and you had three losses, that's not good enough. Right. Whereas if you know if you go to the Rose Bowl in Arizona, Colorado, Utah, and I'm talking about the two Arizonas or Utah and Colorado only have the one. I mean they're going nuts, right? And Oregon State's going nuts. Doesn't matter how many losses you have, you're going to the Rose Bowl. So I think they're all tough. They're they and I actually, in in a sense. These jobs have never been tougher than they are now. And you take the Utes, for example. Kyle has got a great setup, and he deserves that because he's built that setup. But at the same time, it's also its most difficult because 
nobody bats an eyelash about bringing recruit uh, recruiters into our state to take our kids away. We had Vic Soto on, right? Uh, and he played at BYU, and now he's uh, a D-line coach for USC. Well, he's a recruiter for SC. So he can speak the, the church lingo, obviously. He can speak the poly lingo. He can speak the Utah lingo if you don't fit into any, either of those categories. So obviously they're going to, Vic, we're going to sick you on uh, Utah and get in there because there's some real difference makers. We see, you look at mock drafts uh, a year from now, and that lineman Sewell from Oregon, who's a St. George kid, he's... It, Probably not going to be the first pick. They don't normally take an offensive lineman, but he's right there at second and third. Uh, and, and, you know, Trevor Lawrence looks like he's probably going to be the top pick. We'll see how it plays out in the next 12 months. But the point is, man, there are some big-time difference makers in our state, and they're harder than ever to get, even though your program is in the best position that it's ever been. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, and I get that. I can't write that off. But then I look at Colorado and think they don't have as many uh, good high school football players as Utah. And yet they're still losing the best one to Nebraska and two of the top 10 to Nebraska and two of the top 10 to Stanford. So it is a problem for Kyle. But it's also a problem in Colorado, and it looks like they got they're 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 swimming in a smaller uh, a smaller pool. Yes, they are. I understand. And it, Stanford is going to recruit nationally. That's a proven fact. You know, you're going to lose kids to Stanford, and to me, you tip your hat to them and say you've put your yourself you put yourself in the position to be able to receive a full athletic ship for Scott from Stanford. Even if you don't come to my school, I'm proud of you for doing the academic work to get yourself in that position. So best of luck to you, son. The thing that I wonder, and I'm not, and I've been over there at the Front Range a million times for work, and it just doesn't seem like they look west. So it's interesting that you said they're losing kids to Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. So I wonder, you know, leaving the Big 12 to go to the Pac-12, was that really in your best interest athletically, football-wise? Because do kids from California, why would they want to go to Colorado? Yeah. You know, See, what's I the thought, point? I thought it was a good fit for them leaving because they got a ton of alumni in Colorado. And I think from a sporting sense, I think of Denver looking west. Um because, you know, the Rockies play in the National League West and Denver plays in the AFC West, it seems like a fit. But there's no question they had a Texas pipeline going. And the move disrupted it. You know, we always talk about negative recruiting, and I think it's out there. And I think the thing they got hit with is, you want to go to Colorado, they've had a fine program, but they're not coming here to play anymore. You're going to be going and playing off in Oregon and Washington and Arizona and California, you know? So I can see how that could disrupt the... Not end it, because Utah still gets kids out of Texas, but I don't know that they're getting as many kids as they got out of Texas, and I don't think they're getting kids who are as good out of Texas. And yet, it opened up the whole Pac-12 to go recruit in Colorado. Just last year, Oregon. I mean, Stanford went and got the two kids, but Oregon and UCLA and Washington State all went in there and got kids. So... I guess I guess when it's so competitive when you're on the on your heels it looks like you'll never get out from under it and you probably will if you get the right person but it seems like there's a lot of things working against them they're fifth or sixth in the south and in the short run it doesn't look like there's any way out of that in the long run maybe oh I left out ASU you went in and got an offensive lineman out of there too good work PK
I did. <laughs> you did individually. You delivered. You're in charge of the Rocky Mountain region for Arizona State. Well, interestingly that the Buffs have been down, and I think they got a two-game win streak over the Devils. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure, right? All right, DJ and PK coming up. Christian Cable covers the Washington Huskies for the Athletic. We'll talk with him just after 9 o'clock. Our spring football tour continues up and down the schedules of the local teams. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. It's time to showcase those that are helping all of us through these difficult times. This is a partner profile on the Zone Sports Network. DJ PK, and we're joined now by Greg Angle, Mountain Star Healthcare. He is the Mountain Star Division President. Greg, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for the opportunity. No problem. Thanks for coming on. I think a lot of people are curious about uh, how this works. Whenever I do Zoom with friends or family, catching up with people, they all want to know how our life has changed, you know, since the coronavirus shut everything down. I'm thinking, well, healthcare. holy cow, this must have really turned your world upside down. It definitely did. Uh, our eight Mountain Star hospitals up and down the Wasatch Front from Cache Valley to Payson, uh, not too surprisingly, were dramatically impacted like most organizations across the country. Uh, we, were, we were impacted with the preparation for and the, the care of patients who would present with uh, the possibility of COVID-19. And we're also dramatically impacted by the slowdown, which was uh, mandated in order to main, maintain capacity and be certain that, uh, that we didn't expose other patients to, uh, to COVID-19. Yeah, I think that uh, obviously safety is a big issue. And with that in mind, what is doing? What is going on as far as precautions? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, we are fortunate to also be part of HCA Healthcare, which is the largest healthcare organization in the country with 184 hospitals across 21 states. And we're able to take advantage of, of their data, their leadership, the best practices, uh, subject matter experts, and uh, the, both financial and supply chain resources. And so we've been able to bring uh, all these resources to bear to help protect our patients uh, with COVID-19 and those, of course, with, uh, with other conditions. And so we've, uh, we've implemented a number of strategies. Uh, we've we've um, uh, limited the number of entrances to our facilities so that we could screen all visitors and, and, uh, and patients coming to the facility. We've, we've got, of course, very thorough cleaning procedures in place. Uh, we segregate uh, our infectious patients from all other patients so, so um, they can all be safely cared for. And uh, so the bottom line is, you know, it's safe to come back to our hospitals for, their, for uh, patients' much-needed care. So we read stuff about elective surgery, and as near as I can tell, that's a pretty broad term. 
Uh, I mean, there's stuff that really is elective, but you can kind of choose when you're going to have a knee or hip replacement. I have an aunt who fell and broke her arm, so it's kind of healed, but it's 15 degrees off. So at some point, she's got to go back in and and have work done on that. So for that, those kind of quote-unquote elective procedures, do you have them divided into groups? When is a good time to come back and do that? If somebody's listening and they've got to plan this out, how, how does all that work? Yeah, that's a really good question. And really, the, the term elective is kind of a misnomer. I mean, when most people hear that term, they think that uh, it's, it's unnecessary or, or uh, maybe a more straightforward surgery. Really, what it means is scheduled. And there are urgent and time-sensitive scheduled procedures that, that need to take place. And so uh, it, great care is, is really needed in order for us to understand exactly what the patient's needs are, what the, what the surgeon's best uh, possible treatment plan for that patient is. And so we are taking a conservative approach currently, and uh, we have limited ourselves to only those cases which are, which are urgent, emergent, or, or time sensitive. And in particular, there's been concern that you know we not overload the hospital and uh, that we try to avoid those surgeries that might require an overnight stay. Uh, but quite frankly, most of our facilities are, are now at 30 or 35 or 40 percent occupancy. And so to even taking patients you know, that require an overnight stay is, is, is probably manageable. And, and the interesting thing, and I think you touched on it just now, is that there are studies that are coming out now that are saying that as many as a third of Americans are postponing necessary care because of their fear. They're concerned that they might come to the hospital and they might contract the virus. And, uh, and quite frankly, we've got precautions in place to be able to care for that. I mean, we have examples of patients who, are, who have GI bleeds, who are not paying attention to stroke and heart attack symptoms. And we've seen our emergency departments and even our cath lab uh, you know, volumes diminish in areas where you would certainly not refer to those as elective cases. So then I think everybody wants to go, when they, when they go to the hospital, they want to know that the staff is doing all that they can and that the staff is maintaining at full capacity. And what you're saying is you're able to make sure that the staff, whatever that might be, there's not doctors, nurses, and so forth, that everything is running the way it should be. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. You want to have full confidence if you're coming to your your preferred hospital, and so we are working very very hard to make certain that that uh, that our patients and our communities uh, have have total trust that uh, we can care for them. And so, you know, the very first thing that that we had to do was take care of our our colleagues. And I'm really really proud to to say that uh, you know one of the things that we experienced was this dramatic slowdown in in volumes. And so when that occurred, of course, we didn't have enough work. Uh, to give our our colleagues their full hours, and so uh, again, being, being part of HCA Healthcare, uh, who have incredible um, pay, pay and benefit programs already in place, we were able to uh, help mitigate the financial uh, crisis that comes uh, also with our employees, and so. We implemented two programs. Uh, the first we refer to as the pandemic pay program. And so if there's an employee who we can't redeploy to another area to give them their hours, then we'll pay up to 70% of those hours missed according to their normal paycheck. And then again, if they're 
uh, quarantined for any reason, if they've been exposed through the course of work or even at, even uh, in their, uh, from their family life, then we'll pay up to 100% of their salary uh, in order to, to keep them whole. And so I'm really proud to say that so far we haven't had to furlough any colleagues nor implement any, any layoffs. And our leadership uh, you know, led by example here. Our, uh, the CEO of our company donated 100% of his salary to our employee giving fund, the HOPE Fund. Our leaders, uh, both nationally and locally, have taken a 20 to 30% pay cut, all so that we could mitigate salary disruption for our frontline leadership and staff. So that's just the financial aspect of keeping our workforce whole. Because if you come to the hospital, you're going to want you know, the, the fully functioning, skilled, trained employees. But then in addition, you know, we've made certain through, through our national supply chain that we have the personal protective equipment. We're, we're laundering uh, our employees' scrubs so that they don't have to take them home and worry about them. We're, we're laboratory testing for COVID to make certain that our employees and physicians alike, you know, know who, what, what the risks are for these employees. We've worked out arrangements with hotel chains so that, lo- so that employees can stay at a hotel if, if they're concerned that they don't want to take something home to, to their to their families, we've provided frontline meals. We've offered, uh, we've created a healthy market in some of our hospitals, and we've implemented a, a free call line to, to uh, for employees to speak with mental health professionals at any time because we know it's a stressful time. So, we've done a lot to make certain that uh, everything that that a patient would need uh, would be immediately available to them should they come to our hospitals. Greg Angle joining us, Mountain Star Healthcare. He's a division president. So uh, a lot of people have questions about testing. Uh, is there anything that can, can be done at your facilities that you want to share as far as how that should work for people who have questions and wonder if they need to get tested? Yeah, that's that's a great point. We we uh, initially, when the the breakout occurred, our priority was testing those patients who would be needing hospitalization, so that we knew exactly whether they were COVID positive or negative. Of course, if they're positive, then we have special precautions that need to be in place, and uh, the utilization of pers- personal protective equipment, and and those were in scarce supply early on. And so, uh, but since that time, we've been able to shore up those resources, and now we're able to test more people um, on an ambulatory basis, on an outpatient basis. And so we have partnered uh, with the Silicon Slopes, uh, who have testing uh, facilities uh, at numerous uh, institutions at our Mountain Star hospitals, and, uh, and then we are running those labs. And, and so as we gear up, for example, and we are taking care of more surgical patients, uh, then prior to their surgery, because again, these are scheduled, uh, two days prior to their surgery, then we're arranging for them to receive their testing. We've, we've told them where, where they can go to get, the, to get their tests, and then having those, those results then will inf- better inform us as to how best to care for them. A test Utah is a is the uh, is the uh, the website that can be uh, accessed to be able to learn more, a- answer your questions, and also to schedule your outpatient testing. All right, Greg. Anything else we should know? Anything else you want the public to know? 
Uh, hey, I just want to take this opportunity really quickly to, to thank you for uh, the ability to, to get our message out. Uh, and in particular, I, I want to thank all of our frontline caregivers. They are personally modeling our mission. Above all else, we are committed to the care and improvement of human life. So they are our heroes here. We're, we're, we're here to back them up, and uh, we are just so impressed by their resilience, their adaptability, their selflessness, and their dedication to our communities. It's been really inspiring, and we thank them for all their efforts and for how they'll continue to serve our communities as we move forward. So again, thank you for the time, and, and thank you to, to all of our caregivers. Thank you, Greg. Greg Engel, Mountain Star Healthcare Division President. Join us right here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.